When you see stories of crime committed on the news, especially crime committed by young people, do you ever consider why they might have found themselves in a situation where vandalism, drug dealing, theft or violence became the best idea they could think of in that moment? And when it comes to the consequences of that crime, have you ever thought about what role punishment plays in the likelihood of that person committing further crime? My guest today has a remarkable perspective on these two questions. Recently released from years in prison after a horrific accident while drunk driving, Zach Jones is an extraordinary man. And what he has to say about our approach to criminalising trauma responses in young people, criminalising addiction, and how the prisons we send people to are closer to, I guess, a criminal TAFE than a place that helps people recover, reform and rehabilitate... I guess some of it might be pretty challenging to hear, but hey, life's too short to not have these kind of conversations. But first, we've got to play some ads. Because uh, this show is free to listen to, but it's not free to make. So if uh, you mind just bearing with us, you're going to hear some commercials. Thank you, because you're helping us pay the bills. If not, you're lucky. The algorithm pushed in your direction. And you'll just get to hear Zach saying something cool. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. She's in a back brace and a neck brace, this beautiful young girl. And I just burst into tears and I'm telling her I'm sorry. And she's like, look, it's, it's okay. I got in the car with you. You know, I knew you were drunk and and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I uh, I really hated myself for what I'd done. The second you get behind the wheel drunk, there's no saying I never meant for this to happen. There's no I'm sorry, there's no apologies. Whether or not you meant it to happen, it was a possibility that you took on. And so there's no there's no other blame but for blaming yourself. That was Zach Jones. I'm Osher Ginsberg, and this is Better Than Yesterday.
G'day, this is Better Than Yesterday. Thanks so much for being here. This is a tri-weekly podcast that's just here to help make your day-to-day better than yesterday, something that you hear on this show and every show will do just that. That's a guarantee. That we're just here to make, make your day-to-day better than yesterday. We've been here since 2013 and Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, we're here. Mondays and Wednesdays, we're the guest. Fridays, I'm here with you and um, I'm really grateful for everyone, everyone that's reached out to, to me this week, send us your email at gmail.com. It's always great to hear from you. You can also follow me on Instagram, which is great. Thanks also for all the love on DadPod, which I'm stoked about. You can find DadPod with Charlie Clawson and myself uh, wherever you found this podcast, which is, which is lovely. Look, I haven't done a two-parter in some time. This is a two-part episode. This one's just too good to do in one hit because I was just so curious and Zach was just so generous. We just kept talking. It was fantastic. We do cover some pretty heavy ground anyway, so a week's break might be useful to reflect upon <laughs> what Zach and I are, are talking about. So let me tell you about my guest today. Prisons are full of people who made a really, really stupid decision on what was probably the worst day during the worst week and the worst year of their lives. A split-second choice that changed the course of their lives and likely left other lives destroyed or in tatters. Have you ever wondered what the rest of your life is like after making a choice like that? From the outside, at what point would you feel that the perpetrator has paid their debt, changed their ways, and is now free to safely rejoin and contribute to society? Date your daughter, marry your mum. Months, years, decades, how long would you need to feel that you could accept another person as free and clear of the weight of their crime. From the other side, despite months, years, or decades between you and the crime and the jail time, could you ever feel that you're accepted again by society? To compound this, what if the crime happens when you are young? Zach Jones is my guest today. He was 21 years old when he drove a car with four people in it while under the influence of alcohol and drugs. He ran a red light, the car went airborne, crashed into the front wall of a nursing home and burst into flames. Zach went to jail. The story of how he ended up at the point where he chose to get behind the wheel that night, what happened after the crash, what happened in prison and what his life is like now he's out of prison, is, it's eye-opening, to say the least. Because Zach's story forces us to see the facts around the vast majority of crime in our country, especially crimes committed by young people. Zach's story is an example of how criminal behaviour in young people is often more likely to be a response to trauma than anything else. And by criminalising trauma and neglect instead of treating it, whether we like it or not, we set up a self-perpetuating negative cycle of traumatic incarceration, reoffending, and further incarceration. It just goes on and on and on. The human cost, the cost to us as a country, the broken people, broken families, absent parents, it's absolutely devastating. And more than half of the time, it's futile. In Australia, 53% of all people released from prison will return to prison within two years. And that should tell you pretty much everything about how well our system of rehabilitation around criminal behaviour is working out for us. There's a lot to talk about with Zach. So this first part is a goodie. And I'm going to give you a week to have a think about it, and then we're going to get into the next part. There's some pretty graphic descriptions in this conversation of drug and alcohol abuse, domestic violence, road trauma, and self-harm. 
but we left it all in there because it is in context and it's important to hear. Zach and his mother Jane have co-authored a book with their story, Why the Fallen is out now. You can get it at whythefallen.com. Enjoy part one of this conversation with Zach Jones. Dude, I, I just got to say before we start, man, I can't, my mind is actually blowing right now because I haven't, I don't know if I told you, but when I was in jail, I got a men's health magazine and you were on the front cover. <laughs> you know, shirtless and ripped. Holy shit. Oh, well, uh, we're going to have to put this in the show. Um, yeah. Well, there you go. Well, there's a well, long, there's a we'll long, there's a long story you... about that, but we'll get there. Yeah. We will, we will get there. Um, Zach, it's it's great to see you, Zach. Where in the world are you today, mate? Uh, I'm at my house in Melbourne, Melbourne, Victoria. I've heard of this city. Uh, it's uh, the cultural hub of our country, apparently. Yeah, yeah, and something like that. They, yeah. they play a game there with too many people in the field and too many goalposts. I don't understand it. <laughs> a lot of running around. It's like it looks. It constantly looks like two games of handball fighting over the same tennis ball at little lunch. That's what AFL yeah. looks like to me. When I watch it, I'm like, just like giant people running around trying to chase a ball that doesn't bounce properly. Uh, and that's what it looks like. Pass it to me. Get it away from them. School bell. Go back inside. That's what AFL has always looked like to me. And it's everything down here. Like these banners are actually covering up a bunch of Richmond memorabilia. <laughs> 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 I just wanted to avoid the politics for this podcast. Oh, mate, this podcast is nothing but politics. Shit, man. Like, life is politics. Everything is politics. But, no, it's wonderful that we're, we're speaking today. I'm, I'm really grateful you reached out so we could have a chat because it's – um. You know, it's it's it, it's important to have these kind of conversations, especially. Well, it's always important to have these kind of conversations. And you know, I'm a I'm a parent of a eighteen and a half year old. Uh, she's my stepdaughter, and um, and anyone that's got a kid who's sixteen and a half, at least in New South Wales, when it can happen, the moment they get their L's, and then six months later, the moment they get their P's, you're fucking terrified. You know, you yeah. give them the keys and say off you pop, but it never stops. You know, she's you know, every time she goes driving, I mean, still now she's an amazing driver, but still it's fucking scary. So your story is, is really important, um, for people to, to, to hear, particularly the perspective at which you you go, you know, and, and where your story takes us. I don't know, man, you've got a lot to talk about today. Uh, but it's probably important that we, we kind of start at the start when, are you, are you from a big family, Zach? No, I'm an only child. Right. Yeah, was only it? child. Yeah, you don't know anything else. But, you know, when you looked at other kids that had siblings, was there anything that you kind of were grateful for or anything that you wish you had? Look, I, growing up for me, definitely, I, uh, I always wished I had a brother. Um, so my biological father isn't in the picture. I was adopted when I was three. And uh, that man who I consider my dad and my mum got married. Uh, and he has... He has a, a, a son as well. So I kind of got a half-brother, but he lived in England. Yeah, right. Um, and so I never really got to see him. Yeah. So, yeah, I remember growing up always feeling alone and hated not having yeah. people my age around me yeah. or, you know, like a sibling. That was something that always did kind of uh, bother me. One of my best mates in the world uh, is adopted and uh, I knew him. They had just changed the laws in Queensland while I knew him, um, he was 22 when they changed the laws that 
you could go and once you're 18, you can go and do your own investigations and go and find find people. And the day they changed the laws, he went and found them. And I'm wondering what was that what was that journey like for you? So, I mean, my mum was always really open with me um, about my biological father. You know, she'd show me photos of him and and uh, she did have his contact information. So, you know, there were a few times growing up where, you know, we, we'd call him and, you know, there was even one one occasion mum flew me overseas wow. to go and meet him. Wow. And, you know, I learned that I had a half-sister oh, on man. his side. Yeah. And when I saw him, you know, he was – you know, all affection and love and, you know, I've missed you so much, you know, I love you, I'm, you know. And uh, over the span of three days, you know, he really did kind of convince me that he was going to be a part of my life going forward and that I was going to have like a little half-sister. And so when I got back to Australia and normal life progressed and then I didn't hear from him again and, you know, I, I would actually write letters to my half-sister and he wouldn't give them to her. She never got oh, one of them. Fucking fuck. So, and that, that, yeah, that deeply cut me. You know what I mean? That is, I'm so sorry that happened to you, man. That's really, that's really hard. I'm really mm. sorry that, that that experience was like that for you, but I'm, I'm sure that your, your mom and your adoptive family, there's, you know, nothing but love. I mean, to adopt a kid, that's nothing. There's so much love to give. As, um, as we'll get into my, my number one, fan my number one supporter is my mum she has had my back through thick and thin yeah i was an absolute terror growing up um as we'll get into and and yeah she's always always been there like, so you know, when you so. mean when you mean terror what were you like at the age of seven taking notes home from school saying you know zach did this or you know when did terror start <laughs> so look i uh in my book i refer to myself as a toddling tornado because i was hectic from the day day I came out. So, um, I mean, really even my birth, my mum was in labor for like 48 hours. Right. I was breached posterior. I had my umbilical cord wrapped around my throat. Like I came out into this world, a problem. Right. Um, <laughs> God. But, and then it was just downhill from there. Really. <laughs> so but, yeah, look, I, uh, I was, I was, a I was a terror. I actually locked my, uh, my babysitter in my bedroom once when I was really young. Wow. Um, yeah. And then, so yeah, throughout school, I was, you know, disruptive, did not play well with others, yeah. um, you know, class clown and, you know, eventually it just progressed. And then through my teenage years is where it got serious and it got really bad. Yeah. At what, I mean, there's, I'm sure that people are listening have similarities, whether they, it was them or they knew someone who was that person. We all knew that person. There were elements of what you just described that were definitely me and elements of what you described I found around about the age of 14, 15, I found, oh, all those things just don't bother me so much when I'm drinking or smoking weed. Ah. <laughs> but at 14 and 15, that stuff was kind of hard to come by. And I'm wondering if about what time did substances start to show up in your life, Zach? Look, I mean, definitely in terms of alcohol, you know, I started stealing alcohol from like, you know, my parents and stuff like that when I was really like 12 or 13. Right. Um, smoking cigarettes at the same same stage. But at that stage, you know, I really was looking for an escape. Yeah. I, I don't know how, but I formed this ideology that, and it was something that I worked on through counselling, that I developed this, this association between drugs and alcohol, substances, and fun 
unwinding escape. And so, you know, I was dealing with things at school like bullying. I was dealing with the breakdown of my parents' marriage mm. and a lot of different things. And so I was, I was looking to try and avoid facing those, those things. And so I actively sought out drugs and alcohol yeah. and I actively sought out substances to, uh, to help me get through that. I don't think you're alone in that. I mean, I mean, I'm old enough that when I was young, like young, young, like 10, my cricketing heroes were on television, having the best time, partying, enjoying the camaraderie of their friends. And there was heaps of beer and, you know, mm -hmm. rugby league as well, you know. So that association, it's not a stretch. I mean, that was what was marketed as mm -hmm. if you drink, Alan Border and his friends are going to invite you on a fishing trip and it's going to be awesome. Mm. Or, you know, you and the manly seagulls, I don't know what they were called back then, you know, you're going to have an amazing time and Cliffy Lyons is going to cheers you after a game. It's going to be brilliant. And so it wasn't a stretch to think when I crack a beer, this is what I'm drinking. Yeah. But I don't know about you, yeah. but that never ended up showing up. <laughs> no matter no, how much I drank, it never happened. Look, I tell you, I pushed it to the absolute limit. Yeah. And I say this in my presentations a lot, that no amount of drugs or alcohol is ever going to make you happy or ever fix your problems. Yeah, I've tried very fucking hard. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, I've done a lot of field work in that area. I'm the, I'm the large hater on Collider. I'm like, no, we'll just make it go faster and we'll find the answer. Like, no, it didn't happen. Uh, but they never said that in the ads. But, you know, we all had a moment, you know. We all had a moment when that amount of behavior and that amount of substances eventually brought us up. And, and it's weird, you know, I, I, I talk to people about, about it, and I, I don't know if you can relate to this, that there's people who can drink and people who might be able to recreationally use, but, you know, they do it to a point where their ability to self-regulate or the values they have in the rest of their life are enough to go, oh, it's okay, I could not do that and be okay. Hmm. And then, uh, you know, it happened with me and it certainly happened with people I've been close to. You eventually, you pass the last exit with the sign that says the bridge is out up ahead and now you can't get off the road and you just keep, you know, the, uh, there's, yeah. the, no, it doesn't matter how slow you go, eventually you'll get there. And eventually you've, you've passed this point where you can no longer be in control of it. Do you remember that point? Absolutely. I think... I, from a very young age, again, we're talking like 13, 14, and it only progressively got worse. For me, one drink was always too many and a hundred wasn't enough. It's a classic, you know? isn't it? It's a classic. And I, I, I had that mentality that uh, every time I put a bottle to my lips or every time I smoked weed or did drugs, it wasn't just a matter of, you know, feeling some of the effects. It was pushing it as far as I could. Yeah. And every bad, dumb decision I've ever made, yeah. I can trace back to my predominantly alcohol. I don't, I don't, I don't touch alcohol anymore, and I'm, you know, I'm really happy to say that because I am a problem drinker. You know what yeah. I mean? And you know, the ability to recognise that and accept that uh, has has changed my life forever. It is a tough one, isn't it? Because for so long, I don't know if it's our society or our own egos, we want to get 
we want to be able to say it was something else. Oh, I don't know. It was, you know, they didn't give me the job or, I, you know, that person was a dick to me at work or that person doesn't want to go out with me anymore or that person did whatever that cut me off in traffic. Ah, it's there. They're the reason that I'm doing this. Yeah. Once we realize that, you know, we are chosen, not only mm -hmm. our reaction to that situation, but also that reaction involves, you know, trying to avoid the uncomfortable feeling of that situation by whether it be gambling or shopping or porn or alcohol or drugs. That's our choice. I, I tell people, you know, like I'm allergic to alcohol. When I drink, I break out and fuck with. <laughs> As, yeah. You know, it's wild when you do that. It's hard the first time you do that um, reverse engineering, isn't it? And you go, okay, well, let me think about what happened when I was, you know, that friend of mine that I knew for years and I no longer talked to. What was the, let's go back, the things we said to each other. What started the, oh, we were drinking. Oh, what about that time that I was going at that person and then they never called me back again? What? Oh, I was drinking. Like when you start to find out the root cause of it and you realize yeah. that's, it's, it's tough, isn't it? Yeah. And look, for me, unfortunately, it was always more criminal related for me. I was... I was constantly in trouble with the police. Oh, you know, why Why did I wake up in the cop shop? Alcohol, you know? Why did I Why did I smash that shop front? Alcohol, you know? And just, I was uh, incredibly troubled. Like, it was never just, you know, getting kicked out of a club for me. It was a fight. It was never just, you know, being too messy walking down the street. It was, you know, I was vandalizing something, you know? So it was, it was a real problem for me. So waking up out of a, a blackout yeah. in the police station, not knowing how you got there. Yeah. What what I I have heard of someone I've heard of somebody telling this this story the name, but well like what's the first thing they tell you and do you believe them when they say what you've done? I mean, so you you know this one this one example, I woke up in uh Balaclava police station, which is right next to St Kilda and so St Kilda is the beachfront I was uh drinking with this Irish backpacker this girl um, we were having a great night last thing I remember is trying to climb a palm tree and and uh you know when I woke up I was covered in cuts and scratches but so yeah I woke up in this this dirty kind of police station and you know they told me that uh you know I walked across the middle of the road and and was yelling at a police car and so they stopped me and then I just became belligerent and, uh, and they, they had to, they had to lock me up like really for my own good. So that's a busy road to be walking yeah. along <laughs> in that state. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was incredibly embarrassing. Um, how old were you? At that time I was 18. God damn. And yeah. I'm guessing at this point. It's not you. It's not the drinking, is it? Oh yeah, it's not my fault. You know, it was just, you know, the, it was it was the police just picking on me. You uh, know, at, at that time, that's that was my mentality, and uh, you know, I had all these cuts and scratches on me, and you know, that's not because I was, you know, trying to climb a palm tree and be a dickhead. Oh, that was because of the cops. You know, so it was it was it was everyone else's fault. And when you loop back in with your mates and you're showing them the scars and you're telling them the story, oh, oh, I have, you know, you're lot kind of lionizing yourself in the in the retelling, I'm sure. Yeah, and, and oh, I'll give you a beer, like that, and it mm -hmm. just kind of goes around again, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's full that on. inability to actually admit that uh, 
that you're the fucking problem. You know what I mean? <laughs> Were you still living at home at this point? Uh, no. So I was, I mean, look, throughout my teenage years, my parents couldn't keep me at home. Mm. We'd always run away. I would couch surf. You know, there were even times that I, I slept hard, you know, mm. and that was really through my own choice because my parents had this, this rule that there's no drugs in the house. And, uh, and I just wasn't willing to play by that rule from the age of 15 onwards. God damn. But, uh, yeah, when I was 16, 17, I started boarding with a lady in Ringwood, um, this like derelict house. Um, she had like nine cats, so you can imagine the smell. Um, but she smoked weed. And so I lived with her, paid a hundred bucks a week rent and just lived there and smoked weed, you know, and I moved back in and out of my parents' house because every time I would just absolutely fuck my life up, you know, whether it was get myself jumped and I had my jaw fractured or, you know, I'd, I'd been expelled or kicked out or whatever, I'd always go back to my parents. Uh, but you know, eventually I kind of semi started getting my life on track. I stopped being such a delinquent. I started working. Uh, my family opened a, a, a fast food restaurant. So I worked for them and I did, I started renting my own place, uh, in a suburb, not too far from, from where I am now. Um, but that's kind of where everything really went, went south. Yeah. It's interesting how you, I mean, f for one, I want to talk about the, the fact that, you know, you found a place to live where the behavior was accepted. Mm. Um, but do you talk with your, your parents about this now? I mean, they, they, to have that kind of boundary, you love your kids so much that the concept of loving detachment is talked about in places like Al-Anon, mm. um, that even though you love this person so much, the best thing you can do for them is not perpetuate their behavior and allow them to do that. And at the time for, for you, I'm sure there must've been a lot of resentment about that at the time for them. It's a huge amount of pain, but it, it, it's difficult to see that that's the best at that point, that kind of really is the best and only thing a family can do. You've hit the nail on the head, Osh. And I say this to parents a lot because, you know, through my public speaking and my book, a lot of a lot of parents who have who have kids who are doing exactly what I was doing, yeah, uh, are reaching out to me, going, "What should I do?" And and the, what I end up turning around to them and saying is, at some point, you need to stop supporting them the way you do. Yep. To continue to support them every time that they hit rock bottom. They just rock up on your door, you know, you give them money and a place to sleep and you get them back on their feet and, you know, and all those things. Unfortunately, you're only enabling that behavior. Uh, there, there comes a point where you're not actually helping them. You're actually, you're actually doing them a disservice. And not only that, but you're doing yourself a disservice as well, because there are parents out there pulling their hair out and who are suffering because, you know, their kids are, are criminals and drug addicts and just are selfish human beings. And are quite happy to just just take everything from them. And there comes a point where these these parents and I, you know, one of the best things my mum did was say, you know what? No, you 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 go and do your own thing. And she wasn't there right away to pick up the pieces when I made a mess. It is a, a yeah, you know, any parent listening would is probably now thinking about what would it take for me to do that for my own kid. I'm, the the doctor that really saved me, Zach. I've had him, I've had him on the show. Ian Chung is his name, Doctor Ian Chung, and he's the first person that talked to me about about loving detachment. And he's got some harrowing tales to tell 
about parents who have brought their kid back, get them back on their feet, give them a couple hundred bucks or whatever, and that you know that six weeks later, boom, they're gone and they don't see him for three months, four months, and then they show up again. And they've got the third or fourth time that happens, giving them that money, and then that, that enough that's enough money to overdose, and then they've lost their child. One hundred percent. And because to get to that leap of even though every one of your parental reactions is I must protect love them. Love and support, yeah. Love and support no matter what unconditionally. Understanding that addiction, like coronavirus, affects you invisibly and those mm. behaviours, those protection and enabling behaviours is the tendrils yeah. of that addiction making its way into your behaviour, affecting yeah. you, infecting the way you see the world and because <laughs> it's a great line. How can you tell when an addict is lying? Their lips are moving. Their lips are moving. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true because the addiction, the number one symptom of an addict, number one symptom of addiction is, is well, it's two really. It's one, it's to convince yourself that you're not an addict, but two, also to protect itself. And mm. by moving into that bed sit, but moving into that, you know, boarding, boarding with this lady, I'm just living in a house. It just so happens to be a house where there's always weed. And the dealers yeah. around, <laughs> and, so, and so it's just always there, and that's the addiction now driving your life, mm -hmm. even though you're telling yourself, "Oh, it's fine, I'm free, I can do whatever I want." Absolutely, that's the thing that's leading the way. One hundred percent. You know, it, it's uh, and it's a it's a good it's a good note for any any parents who do have kids that are, are battling drug addiction that they need to remember that, you know, if if their if their child is in is in the pit of addiction and you know, right? A parent knows there's there's the red flags and everything like that, or you just actually know that they do drugs. You're when you're talking to your kid, when your kid is telling you what you want to hear, you know, that oh, I want to change, you know, I just need some money, this and that, all that bullshit. That is not them talking, that is the drug. You know, that person is not themselves. No. It's a yeah, it's another part of them that mm. the the desire and need for the instant validation. I don't want to say the drug or alcohol because it could be anything. It could be gambling. It could be porn. It could be giving my phone back. It's that need to protect yourself from the the pain of having to face the dif discomfort that just yeah. gets so dysregulated. Um, I've been reading all of this amazing book. You're going to dig it. It's called The Molecule of More. It's all about dopamine. Fucking amazing. Talking about right, the yeah. the molecule of more. Unbelievable. Written by a doctor. Super well researched, um, but it just talks about when that dopamine system gets dysregulated, how the behaviour then just becomes completely and utterly about searching for that thing as if it were food, water, or shelter. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know? if we don't have food, water, or shelter, we'll die. So we search for those things, you know, relentlessly. Thankfully, we've created a modern society where we don't have to search for those things like crazy. But when we were like living, you know, on the land. That just drove us, like, no matter what, this is the most important thing. I have to find water today, otherwise I'm going to die. Everything else doesn't matter. This fight, that whatever, talking with this person, I need to find water. And it becomes that. It becomes this driven survival instinct from when, you know, we walked out of Africa 20,000, 50, 100,000 years ago. It's fucking amazing, man. You'll, you'll dig yeah. it so much. It's, it's spot on. When I, was, when I was in jail, I was doing a lot of, of counselling and my, my counsellor, you know, um, we did a lot of work talking about what he called my junkie child, my inner junkie child. And it was this hurt young Zach. You know, you know that psychological theory that in all of us is a child. Yes. And in a lot of people it's hurting. So, and mine was completely 
um, drug driven. You know, it, it was on that con- constant search to to detach mm. from from reality and the way that I was feeling. And, and it wasn't until I actually, you know, in the work that we did, it was a matter of, of driving a car, um, you know, because of what I went to jail for. I think that's kind of the mental assimilation that he used. Um, but it was letting that junkie child take a back seat and, yeah. uh, you know, and just letting him heal. Yeah. Yeah. You said you got to a, you got to a share house. Did you cast your share house like the best reality show of all time? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Did you surround yourself with people who would be no problem at all with some, you know, plates in the microwave on a Tuesday night? Look, I can, uh, I can tell you, um, you know, from going, spending my whole life actively seeking out all the negative influences to then going to jail and being surrounded by negative influences and actively seeking out positive influences. Like I've never, I've never made it easy on myself, but, yeah. uh, you know, I don't, I don't recommend, I don't recommend jail to anybody, but it did save my life. Yeah. Wow. Um, did you... horrible place. I had some good TV to watch though. <laughs> um, yeah. The did... bachelor, you know, <laughs> well, I'll get to the angle. Tell me, did your share house have a nickname? My, uh, is that my, Oh, you said you moved. Oh, sorry, I might have got the story wrong. You moved out of the R- Ringwood. You moved to uh, another. Yeah. Were you by oh, yourself, yeah. or did you have flatmates? Yeah, no. So that was my own. That was my own rental property. I did have a roommate move in. Yeah. Um, just to help cover bills and stuff. But he ended up leaving, and so it was. It was all on me. Wow. Um, and it did. It became a very toxic environment. I actually moved. I was in a really toxic and abusive relationship at that time, mm. and I moved this girl in. And when I when I moved her in, I couldn't get her out. And so our, our relationship deteriorated really badly. There was a lot of, lot of alcohol abuse between, between the two of us. And I was using drugs copiously. I was working like 60 hours a week. Uh, and she was kind of just sitting at home, not, not doing anything. And then, you know, I'd get home and I'd have to clean and I'd have to cook. And I was really burning the candle at both ends. And, uh, you know, when things weren't going her way, it became incredibly volatile. Wow. And so my mental health deteriorated and deteriorated more and, and more. And I guess you're reaching for the things that you – what were you working as? What was the job? Uh, so at that time, I was doing deck building and Ooh. I was polishing concrete. Wow. So he- proper, proper, heavy, yeah. heavy physical work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, you, covered in concrete yeah. dust and, yeah. And you're 20, 21 years old. You can do it. Doesn't mean mm. you should do it forever, because it's hard. Oh. It's hard work, and I'm, you know, that lifestyle is often how many cans of Red Bull in the morning, and you know, oh, it's, it's just it, it is. It's a diet of of cigarettes, energy drinks, and Seven Eleven sausage rolls. You know, yeah. um, that was that Not was what great. I was living on. And as the uh, relationship is, you know, deteriorating and you know, escalating, and and as far as you know. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, it was abusive. I'm sorry that happened to you, mate. You're reaching for your coping mechanisms, or you're downregulates. You're downregulating mm. with substances, and that just then puts you know a bunsen burner to the magnesium, doesn't it? It does. It uh, and it and it did. It just got worse and worse and worse. And you know, again, mum trying to be the supportive mother that she was. You know, she managed to help me get this girl out of the house, and then I let her back in. Addiction's not just drugs, man. <laughs> no, it's not. It's, you know, there's, you know, it's like uh, in that movie, Into the Greek. Um, yeah. You know that that yeah. chick's Mr. Aldous Snow. There's nothing you can't turn into heroin. 
He's not wrong. He's he's not wrong. Rusty's mm. got it. Rusty's a bit. He's, I've had to kind of distance myself a bit from Rusty lately, mate. Rusty was a big hero of mine for quite a while there. And then I'm like, I can't come with you, mate. I was yeah. with you with all the sobriety stuff and I was there, but this whole other thing, I'm just yeah. going to have to leave you on your own there. Thanks and goodbye. I'll see you eventually. <laughs> but he's not wrong about a lot of stuff before that. And yeah. that, he's right there, man. I used to listen to his radio show like 2006. I used to listen to his radio show. Um, I download off the internet. But yeah, he's he's not wrong. He's not wrong. There's nothing you can't turn into heroin. If the, it's mm. it's the what can you shove between you and the uncomfortable feeling. Could be anything. Absolutely. Can be anything. What are you not facing, and and how big is it going to have to get? Because eventually that thing just gets so big you can't hold it back, or the thing you're trying to shove between you and it gets so big it will fucking kill you. Mm. Um, which uh, we now we know we like to call rock bottom. So you're 21 years old, and you've got a driver's license, and you've got a car, and you've got yeah. some mates who need to get from here to there. Was it your car? It was my car. What yes. are we talking? Which kind of vehicle? It was a V6 Ford Escape, so it was a big four-wheel drive. So yeah, it's a right. Yeah. What was happening on the night? Were you at your house? Were you, was it a kick-on? What was going on? So I had a really bad day at work. Um, my boss absolutely chewed me out because I was rushing. We were we were just finishing this deck, and and I was kind of rushing, and I I messed up the screw line on this deck, and so it. it was all over the shop and while it wasn't a massive problem that just meant we had to come back on monday to pull up this piece of decking and put it back down and, and then go and so he did he chewed me out about it and you know at that time I, I really didn't take criticism well i and i just had a habit of self-destructing and beating myself up that was just what i did so i got home and i got straight on the bongs and i started drinking i got a call from my friend and he said to me, we've got a spare ticket to the Alex Williamson comedy show. Um, one of my favorite comedians, love the guy. And so I did, I said, yeah, hundred percent, let's, let's go. And that's the funny thing. Like, you know, when I say mates, I really, I, I tend to use, you know, quotation marks cause I was surrounded by a bunch of people who were just using me up. You know, I had a house, I had a car and a license, you know, I always had drugs and alcohol and, you know, I was always more than happy to, to kind of share. We put things around ourselves to make sure that we're enabled when we call it other things. But yeah, it starts to drive all of our choices and all of our decisions. Yeah. There's so, so many so many people that I haven't spoken to since the 14th of March, 2010, and they've never texted to ask how I am. I was like, oh, right. Yeah, that was the only reason you're in my life. Yeah. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. So I did. We, uh, we drove to the city and saw the loose Aussie bloke. And we did, you know, we all had about five, six beers each while we were there. Great show. Did he bring Felitti out? Did he bring Felitti out on stage? No. So this is back in 2017. All right. Um, so it was just him, you know, and and his and his fantastic vulgar humour um, that we all know and love. It's a big, it's a big night. Like it's a pretty raucous night. Like if uh, yeah. if you've never seen Alex Williamson, he's uh, it's it's about the absolute upper limits of what you could probably do and say yeah, in a right. public sphere. Yeah. And so I can imagine the room, it's a packed room, and just the. The permission of being in that room of hundreds of people all laughing at this really wrong kind of bent stuff yeah. kind of gives you permission to like, aha, you know, it kind of opens the floodgates of like, 100%. you know, behavior that is otherwise completely off limits is okay. Mm. And I can understand how that, not saying that 
Alex. Was I'm not, not the reason of anything? No, but I can I just get what kind of headspace you're in. <laughs> anyway, from there, you know, it was it was a great night, and then we we started driving back to mine. And in the car, we were already talking about how far we were going to push this night. You know, oh, let's get absolutely smashed. Let's get home and and just get after it. So before we even arrived home, we'd really made this decision that that we were going to get fucked up beyond all recognition. And so we did, we got home and my girlfriend for the first night in what seemed like months wasn't, wasn't home. She wasn't there. And so I had a night away from all that aggression and, and uh, all that drama. And so that really, in, in my mind, I was like, Oh wow, I can really have a good night tonight. There's not going to be any screaming. There's not going to be any windows broken. There's not going to be fights and violence. It was like, awesome. So, but we got home. And three of my girlfriend's friends were actually already in my house. They kind of came and go as they as they pleased. And so they were already out in my backyard drinking. And, you know, at that time, I didn't really mind. So anyway, we, me and my two friends, we joined them. And we all started drinking and smoking bongs. And, and very quickly, you know, the music's blaring, the fire's going, you know, drinking beers progressed to drinking shots, you know, smoking joints progressed to doing bongs and just, just you know, thumb-packing cones. Uh and then very quickly that just escalated further into instead of just drinking shots, we were sculling vodka straight from the bottle. And uh, me and one of my friends literally took turns. We cracked open a bottle of absolute vodka and stood there and took turns sculling it until it was empty. That can kill you. Yeah. And so <laughs> we, uh, we realized at that point we were out of alcohol and my friend said to me, you know, all night bottle shop, there's an all my bottle shop, you know, like an hour's drive from my house. It's in the city. Great idea. Yeah. Let's go. An hour. Yeah. Round so, trip. Two hours. And unfortunately, uh, you know, that wasn't the first time that I'd done that drive. Yeah. Um, in know, that it, state? Yeah. Look, not in that state, but certainly yeah. in a state that I shouldn't be behind the wheel. So, you know, without a second thought, I grabbed my keys and we went to the car and you know, I'm talking about 30 seconds to a minute between finishing that bottle of vodka and now I'm in my car and I'm already too, too drunk to drive. I'm already too pissed to operate that vehicle with any semblance of responsibility or safety or control. But all that vodka hasn't even really hit my system yet. Yeah. So I, I, um, I turned the car over, passenger jumps in. I'm about to reverse out of the driveway and all of a sudden these three girls, they jump in the back. They wanted to come with. So now my car is loaded. There's five people in my car. Um, I reversed out of my driveway and actually backed into a car that was parked across the street. Like that wasn't enough of an indication that I should not be behind that wheel. And, uh, you know, I'm ashamed to say that everyone in the car kind of shared a look at each other and, and laughed and I drove off and, and then from, you know, I turned onto the highway and, you know, it was, it was like getting hit by a wall of alcohol. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't see straight. I had no sense of direction. Uh, you know, I couldn't drive in a straight line. You know, that's I'm, I'm surprised, I'm surprised you can remember it. Look, it's, yeah, well, there's, there's flashes, but I definitely remember yeah. that onset of not knowing where the fuck I'm going, yeah. not knowing like really what I'm doing. Um, 
not being able to drive in a straight line. I uh, can't control my speed. You know that feeling when you're really drunk and it, your vision is spinning? Mm. You know, you get that that spinning that spinning feeling. I know exactly what you're saying. So, like, mm-hmm. you're, you're oversteering and correcting the wheel or like that sort of thing? And, uh, and you know, and I, like I said, I'd driven to this place many a time, but I, I just I had no sense of direction. So my friend pulled up his phone um, and was looking up Google Maps, you know, how to get there. He was too drunk to see his phone. We were missing turns and and whatever. And, you know, we probably didn't make it 10 minutes because I looked down at his phone for a split second. And uh, when I looked back up, man, we were flying towards a brick wall. We're just going to take a moment away from our conversation with Zach Jones just to let you know that if you would like an ad-free version of this show, you can certainly find it at patreon.com slash osher. There's also full video episodes up there. And um, yeah, you can find out more at patreon.com slash osher. Help us support the show. Help us keep the lights on. That'd be really great if you could do that. Another way to help that's less monetary, but definitely as impactful is to just to let other people know about the show. Rate it where you can, like it where you can, subscribe where you can and share it. Let people know. Like, oh my goodness, I heard this conversation with Skid, Zach. Wild. Uh, that also really, really helps us. We'll be back in a moment with Zach Jones. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I looked down at his phone for a split second, and uh, when I looked back up, man, we were flying towards a brick wall. Flying, um, like... In the like, air, like we were, we were not, we weren't on the ground. Do you know how fast so, you were going? Um, look, I don't. The uh, the official police report said that I was travelling. Also, the mathematician who came out um, and you know calculated the debris field and all of that said that I was going seventy four kilometres an hour. Um, but they said because I drove off the side of an embankment and there was no sign of braking towards that embankment. And then I was airborne and I hit this, hit, hit this brick wall airborne. Uh, the car rolled through this brick wall into the car park of a retirement village. Uh, no cars were damaged somehow. But uh, my car landed upside down and, and I came, came to in this car. And, like, I had no idea what had just happened. Like, my my first thought was why am I in my car? And I don't know if it was shock or because I was so drunk, but um, it really took me about, I mean, what felt like five ten minutes to to uh, 
to understand that I was in a car crash. Um, was there any noise in the car? Were there other people in the, in the car making any noise? Uh, the back seat was totally quiet. Um, at, you know, when I, it took me a minute to really understand that there were other people in my car. Um, you know, cause I'm looking at, looking at my steering wheel and my hands are all cut up and, you know, the windscreen's shattered and the front of my car's all, all messed up. And then I realized that, you know, the car's pretty much on its side slash roof, you know, it's really mangled. Um, then I start hearing panicked voices around the car and I hear my passenger's voice, but, and I don't know if it was me or him, but he was not speaking coherently. Um, it was just incoherent rambling. You know what I mean? And I remember thinking that's really weird. And, you know, I kind of tried to get out of my window to really see what was going on and my foot stuck. But, you know, my, uh, my front seat passenger, he's, his body isn't in the car. Like he's, he's kind of on the roof. I'm looking at his seat and he's kind of leaning down onto me and he's, he's really bleeding. Um, and I can't get out. So I kind of get back in my seat a little bit. Did people have seatbelts on Zach? Uh, yeah, I don't know how, but everyone was wearing a seatbelt that night. That's incredible. And I, ne- I never wore a seatbelt. And really? For some reason, yeah. Do you know what's even weirder is on a little side note, when I got home that day, I had four bags of cement and my tools and all my offcuts of timber in the back of my car. And for some reason, no reason whatsoever, when I got home, I took all of that out. All that, all that, all those bags of concrete my toolbox, all these offcuts of timber that would have otherwise been flying around my car when I crashed. Yeah, it would have been all over, mate. It would and have been I absolutely I, all over. I still, I still don't know why I, why I did that. Mm. And it's interesting. I've never actually brought that up. But yeah, in my head, I was like, why did I take yeah. all that concrete out of my car? I, I, I actually, never do that. I know someone who's been in a, in a similar accident and the Everyone, everyone would have been fine except for the person who was sitting in the middle of the back seat, wasn't wearing a seatbelt, and it was their body flying around the inside of the car that hurt everybody. Wow. It, wasn't, it, it was nothing else. The car was air plagues deployed, everything. The thing rolled over a bunch of times, but it was 80 kilograms of human flying around that broke everything and, you know, smashed everybody and broke bits and pieces, but it's unbelievable that you all had seatbelts on and all that stuff was out of the car because that's like each bag of concrete's 20 kilos, yeah. 74 k's an hour, 20 kilos. That's going to forget it. A Coke can, by the way. If you've got a Coke yeah. can, a full Coke can lying People, around the floor yeah. of your car, that People will fucking kill you. A, tish, a tissue box will fuck you up. All right, yeah. don't don't think it's fine with your doily on the back seat. No, a tissue box, if you hit something at 100 k's an hour, a tissue box hitting you in the back of the head at 100 k's an hour will kill you. I <laughs> don't think it won't. Uh, so, that's, so hang on, how? so your mates on the roof, it must have been so disorienting. So like, why are the cars sideways? Like, what's, why is the so building looking weird? It, it's like kind of up against the wall in the photos um, of my crash. It's like up against, like half up against the wall and the roof's like peeled open a little bit. Oh. Um, but so my foot's trapped underneath one of the pedals and his body is trapped his his leg is pinned um yeah. by the car um kind of the front left quarter of the car had had kind of collapsed on him and then next second we're like so there's all these panicked voices around and then the next second we're getting blasted by a fire extinguisher and uh and i didn't know why and 
and it's not until later that I found out that the car was on fire. And by some, like, just, you know, miracle, there, there was a guy driving past who had a fire extinguisher in his car and he jumped out and he, he put that fire out. How'd you guys get out? So, I mean, the, the SES came. They got me out, laid me down on the side of the, laid me down on some grass. And I was actually like, you know, two meters away from one of the girls in the back seat. She was laying down on the grass as well. I don't know if she was moving at that point. And, uh, you know, I had this moment when I was growing up, there was, there was this TV commercial, this TAC commercial, um, where this guy got in the car drunk with his girlfriend and, and he crashed and they lay him on the side of the road next to her dead body. And, and he cries out, what have I done? And I, that literally came to my head. It was like the exact, it was like I was in that exact scene. Um, it was so vivid. And I, and I remember thinking like, what, what the fuck have I done? Um, and I was just, you know, I, I wasn't religious at that point. And I, uh, you know, I started praying. I really did. I started praying, please don't let any of them die. You know, take me instead, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And then, so then I was loaded into the back of an ambulance and I don't know if they gave me something or I passed out, but then I woke up in the hospital and I was naked as the day I was born on this hospital bed, people running all around me. And, you know, I'm trying to, like, everyone's moving around really fast. And I'm trying to grab people and ask them, you know, where are my passengers? What's going on? Are my passengers all right? And, like, these these nurses and doctors, they have no idea. All they know is that the person on that hospital bed is a drink driver and he was in a really bad crash. So, you know, understandably, they had very little time or patience for me. Um they were doing their tests and, and checking up on me and, and providing me with the, you know, the necessary amount of care. But, um, yeah, there was definitely this air of um, resentment, you know, because I'm pretty sure they'd be sick of dealing with, with people like me. Uh, did the other, other four people end up in the same hospital? One did, but I didn't find that out till the next day. So I spent that whole night just in absolute fear um for for their well-being and um and i was just terrified my mum actually came um that night during the crash because the police rocked up at, at her house and said look he's alive but he's been in a really bad crash he's you know he's at saint vincent's hospital and so she came and i'm on this stretcher completely naked my face is all torn up from uh, from the windscreen and um you know i just i start i start crying and saying i'm sorry and then i, I tell her that i'm going to be sick and mother's intuition, but she grabbed this nearby wheelie bin and pulled it in front of me, and I just vomited like pure alcohol, and it's it cleared the room. It was it was horrible. But so yeah, then the next day, you know, I woke up, and they told me that uh, you know I mainly had just superficial scratches on my face, um, but they told me that yeah, one of the one of the girls in the back seat. First, they told me everyone was alive. But they told me one of the girls was at the same hospital as me. Um, they told me that she had a fractured vertebrae and that she could have very well been paralysed. Um, it was very lucky. Right. So I went and saw her. She was on the floor above me. Um, I I click the elevator button. The elevator door opens. Um, and I get in to the elevator 
and there's this distraught mother and father just standing in there. And uh, and I thought, this can't can't be what I think it is. And they see my face and the first thing they say, I use Zach. And I'm, and I'm like, yeah, I am. Um, you know, is this your daughter? And they said, yes. And like, what do you say? And so I just, I said, guys, I'm so sorry. You know, I, I didn't mean for this to happen. I'm so sorry. And, uh, and I, and they probably didn't know what to say either. And they just said, look, everyone's alive. We're just happy. Everyone's alive. And so I, that could, that could have gone in a bunch of ways, man. It could have. Yeah. And, um, the, the dad was a big dude. Dad was a very big dude. And so let me tell you, that was one, one floor in the elevator, but that was the longest elevator ride of my life. Yeah, and so, you know, they went in and saw their daughter and I stood outside and waited. And then, you know, they walked out and they said, look, you can go and go and talk to her. And as soon as I turned the corner, she's in a back brace and a neck brace, this beautiful young girl. And I just burst into tears. Like I started crying and, you know, and I say in my presentation that the second you get behind the wheel drunk, there's no, I never meant for this to happen. You know, when, when it goes bad, there's no saying I never meant for this to happen. There's no, I'm sorry. There's no apologies. You know, if you get in the wheel, get behind the wheel drunk or you drive recklessly, like, you know, whether or not you meant it to happen, it was a possibility that you took on. And so there's no, there's no other blame, but for blaming yourself. And so anyway, I see, I see this girl, this beautiful young girl, and I just, yeah, I burst into tears and I'm telling her I'm sorry. And, and she's like, look, it's, it's okay. I got in the car with you. You know, I knew you were drunk and, and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I, uh, I really hated myself for what I'd done. Yeah. I really, really hated myself. And, uh, you know, and being the drug addict that I was, you know, in the weeks after the crash, um, I just really descended into this really dark, dark hole. I fucking hated myself. I couldn't stand to look at myself. Um, I actually, after, a few days after I got out of hospital, cause I discharged myself that day. I was like, nah, they, they, cause they told me like it was just scratches on my face and whatever. And I was like, look, I don't even deserve to be here. And I discharged myself and I went home and, you know, a couple of days after the, the crash, I, uh, the swelling on my face went down and, you know, there was, there was a lot of glass in my face, a lot of glass. And so rather than go back to the hospital, looking back, it was self-harm, but I, you know, with tweezers and, and a razor blade, I'd, I'd cut and pull all of that glass out of my face. And that's why up here, and I don't know if you can see it, but see the side of my nose there, that scar. So that, that had a big piece of glass that went in it that way. And, uh, and yeah, so all there and all down this side of my arm, um, yeah. was, all, was all covered in glass. And so I, you know, I took it upon myself to get all that out, but I, I started using a copious amount of ice. Um, you know, I didn't, and I, you know, I'm ashamed to say, it, but I did, I started using needles. I was drinking every day. I was smoking, smoking bongs every day. Um, doing everything just shy of heroin. Um, you know, I'd never, I'd never touched heroin cause it always scared the hell out of me. But, um, yeah, I was, you know, I was, I was a junkie after that. At what, at what point do the, do you get told from the police, mate, you expect to hear from us again? Australia day, 2018. I get a call from, from Forest Hill police station. 
senior sergeant calls me and says, look, Zach, we, uh, we need to have a chat. And so my crash was the 7th of December, um, 2017. And so yeah, February, um, 2018, Zach, uh, you need to come in. We need to have a, we need to have a chat. So I did, I went and, uh, yeah, they uh, they weren't they were very happy with me, understandably. Um, they charged me with four counts of reckless conduct endangering life, which I will say, each one of those sentences carries a maximum sentence of ten years. They charged me with four counts of negligently causing serious injury. Each one of those has a maximum sentence of ten years. Uh, four counts. You know, my license was suspended at the time. I didn't even know, it, but it was. You know, four counts of driving while suspended. They they charged me. Every charge was was times four for all the people in my car. I left with something like twenty eight charges, and they were really really serious charges. Um, and so I knew I was fucked. I knew I was going to jail. There was nothing I could do about it. Um, yeah, and I. You know, the rapper 360 says in one of his songs, you'd think having a near-death experience would make a smart person take their life more serious. And and it's it's messed up because it's so true, but I didn't. You know, I didn't take my life more serious. I just – I was on bail for 18 months before before I was actually put behind bars. And, and that time, you know, it was like – it was as if I was just on death row. You know, there was nothing that I could do between now and my court date that was going to change the outcome. And I deserve to go to jail for what I did. You know, I, I, even back then I believed like I deserved to go to jail, but that was terrifying. It was a terrifying thought. Um, and so I did, I just did drugs and I, you know, I stayed with this abusive girl for far too long. I did finally get away from her. Um, you know, the house was trashed. I was, I was told that my landlords would not be renewing the lease no surprises there. Didn't get my bond back. All the furniture and stuff that my mum had given me, she gave me couches and, and all these really nice, you know, appliances. Um, I, I ended up putting them all out on hard rubbish and, and, uh, finding a place in Ringwood, just moving into some guy's spare bedroom. And I took what pretty much everything that fit in one room I took and everything else I left for hard rubbish and I didn't tell her where I moved. And that was the only way that I got away from her. Um, right. That was pretty much the only good thing I did before I went to jail. Um, What's it? How do you know the day that you're going to go and what happens? Do you have to show up yourself? Does someone come and take you? So when you leave the police station, they give you uh, like a brief of evidence or, or not really, so like a charge sheet. And on that charge sheet, sheet has the, the date that you have to appear before a judge. And there were a few little like hearings beforehand. You know, there was like a committal hearing and, and stuff like that. And then, you know, I, there's another one where you enter your plea. And that was when I pled guilty, that was at the County court. And that was when I was, I was remanded into, into custody. That was when my jail sentence really started. And there it is. That's the end of part one of my conversation with Zach Jones, quite a cliffhanger, I know, but we'll be back next week with the next bit. Uh, You can skip ahead if you like you can get his book it's called why the fallen available right now at whythefallen.com he wrote the book with his mum to tide you over until next week here's just a little taste of what zach's got to say from the very start jail has 
absolutely everything you need to either turn your life around and become a better person or become a career criminal and become very good at it. And it's it's totally up to you. I definitely love to hear your thoughts, your reflections on what Zach and I have been talking about. Send us your email at gmail.com is where I am. Also find me on Instagram. Let me know where you're listening. I love to see where you're listening. It's always good. Big thanks to everyone that helped me make the show today. Bree Steele on research and support, Toe Hider who made all the music, Andy Ma who cut everything up, audio and video, and Rachel Barrett, the executive producer of everything. I'll see you back here Wednesday. So I'm heading back on the hospital this week. So if you hear me fresh as a daisy later in the week, it's probably because I did it before the surgery. <laughs> um, so I was a little tight to get it done in, in time. But uh, yeah, I'll catch you soon. I can't wait for you to hear the second part of, of Zach. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.